Hello and welcome to another episode of Alternative Frequencies. My name is Carol Abiranem. I'm a research manager and communication specialist at the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies, and I will be your host today. I have the pleasure of being joined by colleague and friend, Canadian Lebanese researcher and expert and instructor in the areas of forced migration, gender and conflict, Jasmine Lillian Diab. Hi, Jasmine. Hi. Hi. Uh, Jasmine, can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you have been working on recently? Not my favorite question, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. Um, my name is Jasmine. I, uh, I'm currently based at the American University of Beirut. I work for their Global Health Institute uh, and their Refugee Health Program. Um, beyond that, I serve as the uh, UN Major Group for Children and Youth's uh, focal point on migration. Mm-hmm. And I also work closely with an organization called mm-hmm. Asylum Connect. I serve as their uh, data coordinator and outreach coordinator. So. Okay. That's a little bit about me. All right. That was good. Uh, That sounds great. So I'm just going to summarize. In today's episode, we will be discussing uh, COVID measures that have been used in Lebanon and their impact on the refugee communities in Lebanon, especially the Syrian refugee community. Uh, Since the beginning of the pandemic, the Lebanese state has been taking certain measures to try and prevent or, to say the least, slow down the spread of uh, COVID-19. And there has been worldwide debates and scrutiny about certain state responses and how they are exacerbating certain inequalities between different communities. This is particularly true in contexts such as Lebanon, where the measures taken did not really factor in the needs and health rights of refugee communities residing in the country. So today we will be discussing what measures were taken to protect Syrian refugees from the pandemic, or how to include them in these measures, how these measures were communicated or applied in informal settings or refugee gatherings, and finally we will be trying to touch upon our understanding of vulnerabilities and whether or not our understanding of vulnerability needs to change in light of the socioeconomic and political fabric that is both changed locally and internationally. So Jasmine, can you tell us a little bit about what the COVID measures in informal settings looked like? And do you have any information on how they were applied? Application is is, uh, the entire obstacle. Mm. Applicability of prevention in these settings is the biggest obstacle. Mm -hmm. Um, We're talking about a setting that is constituted of of close quarters. There's an absence of sanitary conditions, of Mm -hmm. hygiene requirements, any prerequisites, uh, basic hand washing Mm. and, and social distancing. These uh, fundamental aspects of a successful COVID prevention measure are just unavailable and unattainable uh, Mm -hmm. in in these types of settings. Um, Different UN agencies, uh, the UNHCR, Mm -hmm. uh, UNRWA, the World Health Organizations, uh, collaborating with grassroots organizations on the ground, they take it upon themselves to host awareness campaigns, uh, provide as much medical support as possible, provide water resources, provide masks, but... To a large extent, COVID prevention in these type of settings exacerbates additional inequalities, Mm -hmm. additional conflict situations. So you're talking about while you're saving them, quote unquote, from COVID, Mm -hmm. you're actually neglecting that the conflict in a refugee setting is intersectional Mm -hmm. and is layered. And it's beyond talking Definitely. You're Mm -hmm. talking about people being isolated in closed quarters with potentially abusive partners. Mm -hmm. You're talking Mm -hmm. about uh, people being... Uh, psychosocially frustrated, you're talking about uh, exacerbating uh, violence, Uh, you're talking about heavy burdens on people's mental health. And Mm -hmm. so while you're trying to ultimately apply these preventive measures in these settings, and we find it difficult enough doing it in our own homes with our own families where we can each lock ourselves in our own room, Mm -hmm. These factors are, are to a large extent, you know, uh, spoken up about, but a solution to them, a tangible solution has not been found yet. Mm-hmm. So 
I would say that while on a technical level we can do what is required and inform this population of people about what is required, in application it's a whole it's a whole mm. different story. Mm. Definitely a whole different story. So were the measures just basically linked to you know social distancing, or was it just primarily just on these issues? Were, or were there efforts on how to you know not just prevent COVID but raise awareness about it? and other public health issues or public health um, pandemics in general. There was a lot of awareness raising. I would say uh, UN agencies and grassroots organizations took this upon themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not the states? No. Refugees are generally isolated from Mm -hmm. our national uh, plan, Mm quote-unquote, if we can still say that we have a solid one. Um, They they are not addressed. And I I understand that in, in times of intensity, uh, priorities are shifted, you mm-hmm. know, and our understanding of uh, contextual cases, uh, it cannot be factored in, you know, mm-hmm. as soon as things happen. I would say to a large extent, the UNHCR and the World Health Organization have been working closely with these communities to uh, raise awareness and also help them understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We we are assuming that these are people that are connected and informed about things that happen outside their areas of residence, whether they're informal settlements mm-hmm. or... But there are some people that essentially don't leave these locations, Absolutely. you know, and then all of a sudden their reality within where they live or where they reside is shifted mm-hmm. and, and they can't make sense of it. So, no, there is definitely a lot of awareness campaigns and a lot of uh, information sessions mm-hmm. as well. Okay. Uh, in Arabic, very clear, very uh, very strict as well, I mean, as, as strict as you can be. Mm-hmm. But yes, the information is being relayed that okay. way, definitely. Yeah, but basically they're not giving the people the proper tools for them to apply the information that they're being given, right? Yeah, and to as mu- they help them as much as they can. I mean, yeah. to a large extent, you can give uh, people hand sanitizers and, and gloves and masks, but I mean, the, the context that they're in does not assist the situation. Yeah. So they know maybe what they're supposed to do. But Not to a large what extent, what their priorities are. I mean, we, we talk about the intersectional nature of the conflict for refugees, where they're also torn between leaving to make money, leaving to feed yeah. their families. You know, a lot of these people, and we'll address this later on, work in the informal sector. Yeah. And, and they, on a day-to-day basis. They weigh in their options. They're like, do I care about this COVID situation if I'm going to starve? I mean, their priorities are so different than yeah. ours that their their uh, response to it and the response that we should have you know, towards them when it comes to mm-hmm. this is, is a completely separate discussion. We, we often assume that we can uh, place people, you know, we can compartmentalize people. And there's so much of a obstacle already within the refugee community, whereby we look at them as this homogeneous group. Yeah, which they're know? not. Not at all. Absolutely. We don't talk about uh, gender minorities. We don't talk about women's need. We don't talk about children's need, the disabled, the elderly. We just assume that this is a homogeneous population. Yeah. So imagine going into that with something like COVID. I don't think our understanding has ever been challenged so much. You know, So their understanding is challenged. Mm-hmm. Their priorities are different. And our priorities are flawed. So, yeah. I mean, it is it is this uh, this unfortunate equation, I would say. It moment. almost feels like this was supposed to be meant as a reality check. And then how you how you deal with it afterwards actually makes all the difference. That's I mean, I, I read in one of your articles, you quoted uh, a guy mentioning something in a viral video, whereby I think he said something along the lines of, we will not be dying from COVID, we will be dying from starvation. Precisely. And this basically illustrates exactly what you're trying to say. There is a certain precariousness that we're not factoring in, right? We're, we're treating it as that these are just, you know, refugee communities and we have to make sure that they don't spread it to us. Because it almost felt like, at least from my end, from a reader's perspective, when I asked myself, what is happening in these informal settings? 
it almost felt like, you know, we're going to give you the masks, we're going to give you the hand sanitizers, but make sure not to give us the virus. So it was less we're about... We're going to give them to you exactly. not to give us the virus, exactly. not to protect yourselves. We, exactly. you know, you guys can infect each other, but as exactly. long as it doesn't leave where you're staying. And, That's and how the measures look like from afar. It looks like the measures were just implemented to make sure that the outside stays on the outside. That or, it's contained, yeah. precisely. And, uh, and their understanding of this as well is, is, is to be that exactly. Yeah. It's that you want to put us off in closed quarters. You yeah. don't care how we make our money, how we feed ourselves. Mm-hmm. You don't care whether or not we infect each other. As mm-hmm. long as we have a curfew and we're not allowed to walk amongst, you know, yeah. citizens or walk amongst, you know, people yeah. in the area that are quote unquote not refugees. And that's that's pretty True. much what it is. And it doesn't assist perception at all. It doesn't yeah. assist people's perception of refugees at all. So speaking about that perception that would be affected, uh, how do you think these measures have affected the relationship between the host and refugee communities, if it has in any way affected it? Um, it definitely has. It's uh, perception among the, you know, among Lebanese people, for example, among anyone in, in, in the region uh, towards refugees is already flawed. We mm-hmm. already blame them for so much. Mm-hmm. We, we make them carry a burden that they otherwise uh, uh, really are, are completely disconnected from, that, uh, that really has, has a different... Um, it has a different implication on them when mm-hmm. you accuse them of these things. So we already accuse them of, of taking people's jobs. We accuse them yeah. of charging less for things that otherwise citizens could do and taking away, you know. So we charge them with situations related to the economy. We charge them with social implications. So there's now higher crime rates. There's now less jobs. Mm-hmm. There's now, And then now add upon this, this burden, this mm-hmm. heavy burden of perception that uh, refugees are spreading the virus, yeah. right? So many people, uh, uh, really, in, in closed settings and on open platforms, saying that their irregular movement across borders, mm-hmm. their uh, irregular location of living, their irregular status, your inability to track their movements, all of this is spreading the virus, mm-hmm. as if otherwise citizens are not responsible for the spread at all. You know? As if they're taking all the precautions necessary. As if you can go to every club or pub down your street and party, and that's fine, right? Yeah. In a very close proximity with tons of people without any masks mm-hmm. on. But if the refugee camp, quote-unquote, around the corner from where you live is not closed off and every mm-hmm. person is not accounted for, then they're responsible for it. So this perception and this blaming has always been a, a big challenge for policy implementation, for human rights discussions, and and the application of also our uh, post hoc measures in response mm-hmm. to a crisis we panic when there's a crisis. Absolutely. We want to blame someone. We want to take the blame off ourselves. Because this is what happened. And it's easy. And they're the weaker link. Mm-hmm. And this is how it happens in absolutely everything. Whether it's crime, violence, the economy, the jobs, anything in between. The political instability of the country, the the, the, the protests, the, the you know. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's a heavy burden to place on someone like that. Because, as I said, the intersections... Are, are so heavy. There are so many layers to what they go through. A lot of the reports I read before I wrote my pieces interview refugees and, 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 and ask them whether or not this has affected them uh, additionally since the beginning of this pandemic. And they, they've spoken out about mm-hmm. the fact that a lot of people are uh, blaming them, are overtly saying things to them if they see them walking down the street. You know, there's a lot of racism, harassment. There's there's a lot of that. And it, it just gets worse. And and because of it, municipalities are now limiting refugees' movements, you know. There were a few municipalities in Lebanon, for example, that were receiving endless complaints. Mm-hmm. Complaints about, about how mobility. there's no curfew. Yes, um, precisely, for refugees, for refugees to move yeah. around. And so this is all I see this as a, the... as a pattern, though. In Lebanon, we have several municipalities that are outwardly... Yeah. Um, 
racist, yeah. towards uh, and xenophobic almost, towards certain refugee communities, uh, particularly towards Syrians, unfortunately. Uh, we have seen measures of curfews before that have been debated, um, mm-hmm. and they're very controversial. And uh, it always comes back to a sense of safety, right? A make-believe safety that the state, quote-unquote, is trying to impose, which already puts the refugee community in a negative light. That's true. When they, That's true. they end up internalizing that instead of challenging it, because, as you said, they're the weaker link. But this makes me, this makes me think about, you know, an additional question, which is, not a question, mainly more like a statement. Not only have we imposed on them all of these things, we almost are, I'm starting to hear this discourse of kind of blaming the refugees for their choices to come here. Precisely. Given that this country is not doing well at all, right? And yeah. so um, I've been hearing a lot from Syrian refugees that are mentioning that this level of racism has been increased to, you know, actually judging their choice from going from a war place coming into this country and then almost being responsible for everything all of the disadvantages that were that were already existing definitely definitely this is a discourse that's uh, as old as time you Mm -hmm. know particularly in this country it's not our first wave or encounter with a refugee population Mm -hmm. that we you know, intrinsically blame for everything. This is what we do. Mm-hmm. It's part of our uh, political, economic, social, cultural discourse, mm-hmm. right? It's this refugee situation. And it's not a secret mm-hmm. that Lebanon or that any developing state does not have the infrastructure to take an entire population in. Absolutely. This is, you know, there are numbers, there are facts, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. But the notion of blame is a completely separate debate. Absolutely. I've spoken to uh, refugees in camps where I've volunteered, where Mm -hmm. we've been down on the field, that tell me if I could go back, I could. Yeah. If I'm going to live in a tent where I am here, why don't I live in a tent in my own country where at least nobody bugs me about leaving it, going to to feed myself, going to get a job. And, Mm -hmm. And this is what... This racism and this uh, rhetoric does to people. Mm-hmm. You're essentially starving, starving a population. Yeah. You're, you're not giving them jobs. You're not even giving them informal work anymore. You're restricting their ability to access these situations. You're making them resort to otherwise, you know, dangerous things that they wouldn't be resorting to, to inhumane things, mm-hmm. to violent things. You're increasing the risk of gender-based violence, mm-hmm. of mental strains, of sexual trafficking, of sexual harassment, mm-hmm. of doing. Also questionable and, and implicable things for, for money or to get paid. And mm-hmm. this has been reported. And this is the really dark and ugly side that people don't want to hear about. They don't want to admit it. They want to hear what restaurants are opening, what restaurants are closing, what areas are closed, what their curfew is, how much they can get out of their day. And like this is also everyone's right. Yeah. But let's look at this holistically, right? So when you cut off people like this, full segment of the society and you're you're essentially telling them to fend for themselves this is never a good thing not on the short run and not on the long run yeah right so this is kind of it it goes against uh the logical response instead of taking the most vulnerable in Mm -hmm. right so that you don't exacerbate an already existing conflict yeah right you're you're kind of intensifying a conflict and suppressing it and at some point this is going to it's going to get worse. It's just going to get, there's nowhere for it to go. It's yeah. just going to get worse. So I don't, um, I don't think it's all perception at all. It's, uh, it's just added another layer, yeah. another layer of harassment and of, of racism and just intensity for these people mm-hmm. for sure. Well, that was a grim response. 
We should lighten up the mood a yeah. little bit. So let's talk a little bit about gender-based violence that you, mm-hmm. you talked about before. I mean, um, there were a lot of concerns about uh, domestic violence and about lockdown laws that were really harmful for women that mm-hmm. were stuck in their houses mm-hmm. for long times with their perpetrators, uh, with uh, their abusers, their... And we have heard of calls for, you know, taking that into account, right? For uh, head of households that are run, households that are run by women, mothers, uh, you know, them being stuck as well with their kids at home, which is, you know, in Lebanon, is also an added layer of stress. So what do we know about cases of gender-based violence uh, during the pandemic lockdown specifically? Do we know if any of these have been increased, reported? Has this instability on the economic, political, and social level that has already destabilized the entire population, how has it affected the the refugee community amongst themselves in terms of their intergroup relationships, their interpersonal relationships as well? And how has this affected men and women differently? So what's interesting actually is that we tend to forget that we intersect with the refugee community on many levels. So in the areas of gender-based violence, for example, I it just goes read across. it goes across, yeah. right? So I mean, gender is not uh, linked to anything really beyond your your gender your gendered situation, your gender Absolutely. context, right? Really, it doesn't really matter uh, what part of the planet you're on. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about uh, gender-based violence, I actually just uh, this morning this morning I read an article whereby uh, Abad, the organization mm-hmm. that deals with uh, with gender quite well, actually, gender issues in the, in the country and in the region, was saying that their gender-based violence helpline was ringing off the hook. Absolutely. I right? And this article. is not a targeted population that's calling. It's, yeah. it's every woman, Lebanese, Syrian, Palestinian, you know, domestic workers that work in households. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's a helpline for women that yeah. are essentially isolated in a toxic environment whereby their abuser is additionally mentally and psychosocially constrained Mm -hmm. and then this is obviously a situation that is dire and and as bad as it was before the person has nowhere to go Mm -hmm. in a refugee camp this is tenfold Mm -hmm. so we are already assuming that this person is confined to the informal living situation the the informal camps or the the place where they live Mm -hmm. and then we are additionally putting on the weight of the perpetrator or the abuser that they cannot go out and make money. Mm -hmm. They have no reason to leave the camp or they can't, right? And so this is all going to be vented out, unfortunately, somewhere. Um, In the refugee community, the the question of gender in general is still, you know, very, uh, very fresh and and new. Like I said, when we tackle a problem, we want to look at it as as comprehensively as possible. Absolutely. We want to talk about the refugee population. Don't get us into details. Don't tell us what the kids need. Don't tell us what the elderly need. Don't tell us what the disabled need. And definitely don't, don't tell us what the women need, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. this is pretty much the rhetoric. And so we're talking about now COVID, where we are barely managing through it on the level of our citizens, even mm-hmm. some of the most developed states. And now we're talking about refugees. And now we're talking about intersectional themes of abuse within the refugee community on a very micro, micro level. 
people are not addressing it. No. It's the truth. It's there. It's always been there, but mm-hmm. it's exacerbated. It's even exacerbated within Lebanese households and within uh, households of, of people that you would otherwise not suspect. You know, I mean, this is an age-old uh, debate. It's a it's an age-old uh, issue, and it's um, perceived in a in a very negative light and a very mm-hmm. falsely and um, a very false rhetoric. I would mm-hmm. say, you know, in in Lebanon, the region, and and beyond, and so. The problem is that within uh, refugee communities, this is normalized. Mm-hmm. This is what I found the uh, in a lot violence. of work. Yes, yeah. completely normalized, completely justified, and now additionally even more so. Mm. Hearing notions like, um, your husband is under stress. Mm. He needs to provide for you and he's unable to. You need to understand. You're his partner. You should suck it up. You should suck it up. Mm-hmm. You need to be the buffer between him and his kids. You mm-hmm. need to be the buffer mm-hmm. between him and the outside world. Yeah. Don't let him leave frustrated. You don't know what he'll do, right? And yeah. this is this is kind of the the rhetoric that's repeated inside and outside refugee It's the fear mongering and blaming men, blaming the victim mentality Definitely. in a way. Definitely. It almost seems sad that although we know that this is a a very uh, you know it's not new. It's not. This whole domestic violence, gender based violence, you know the. Feminist and women's rights movements have been really spearheading this discourse and trying to put it on the map and it almost feels like we only started addressing this GBV issue um, within the refugee communities because it became relevant to a public health issue rather than a rights-based approach and uh, protection approach. So... um, I wonder if we would have, have we would have talked about GBV and refugee communities if it had not been to these unjustifiable or un- inapplicable measures that were used in lockdown. Do you think we you know would it would it have sparked interest in policymakers or in policy researchers? Yeah, I mean obviously in researchers, in the there's the interest is always there. <laughs> in in policymaking, uh, it's an entirely different story. Yeah, um, policy or stakeholder groups, Israel. right? Because Definitely. you know the UN. I mean, I know that UNHCR has worked on GBV before. Of course, uh, they've also worked on sexual gender based violence and. Um, but would we have spearheaded this? Would it have been an issue if it did not come in tandem with the public health? I feel like it's always been an issue. Of Absolutely. course, uh, it uh, light is shed on it mm. uh, with you know to a different extent under different circumstances. Mm-hmm. I think COVID has put a lot of things into light, given a lot of things attention, and put a lot of things into perspective. Mm-hmm. If anything, it's showed us how unprepared we are, yeah. how uh, even the most sophisticated public health system, even the most sophisticated policies and governments and developed quote-unquote states around the world are really unprepared. Mm -hmm. And they're unprepared on a very large scale, let alone being prepared for these very specific contexts, Mm -hmm. right? We've already uh, battled through understanding uh, international migration and refugee law, understanding the global compact for migration most recently, the global compact for refugees through navigating people's movements, navigating their special needs, navigating their uh, their cont- their contexts, mm-hmm. and and we haven't gotten to that point. I think uh, gender based violence, you know, falls in line with everything yeah. else. Unfortunately, it's. Uh, it's a subject that we're discussing in light of something more recent. Yeah. Gender-based violence in refugee camps in COVID circumstances, amid COVID pandemic, amid, you know, and it's it definitely gets gets a little more attention because there's mm-hmm. a new research policy, uh, you know, correlation that's created. Mm-hmm. But 
But yeah, I mean, it is it is generally very unfortunate. Yeah. It really is. I, I know that it has been addressed, but everything is addressed 10 times more mm-hmm. now, you know? I. But that's that concerns me when you make that association with this topic being discussed. It almost feels like in the minds of people, when the lockdown was lifted, right? Or when the curfew was lifted, or people could have mobility, it almost seems like the problem disappeared. Precisely. And that's not and the that case really worries all. me in yeah, public health issues of and uh, social issues as well. If we are only talking about GBV now, yeah. is there fear that this discourse will go away when we have a vaccine? Or when we no, have I don't, treatment I don't, yeah. and, you know, when we don't have to use these physical measures of trapping people in their houses to, to, to prevent the, the spread of the virus. And I worry that on a social level, the social fabric and the mentality of society will forget, it will disappear in the background. And they will forget because they, we've given them that association that GBV came about in the discourse 10 times more now, like you're mentioning. It's true. Primarily because there's an issue where people cannot leave the house. The, the, the problem with it disappearing is a very valid problem. Mm. GBV is, is not only uh, an age-old issue, it has been layered as well with a lot of social, cultural uh, understandings yeah. as well, right? So we otherwise do not discuss it, and that's true women have difficulty discussing it mm-hmm. even even men in abusive situations have difficulty discussing it it's a taboo subject and Absolutely. it will be unfortunately for a very long time, very long time. Mm-hmm. within this context light is shed on it and it's made uh, it has made us believe that it's associated like you said with being trapped with someone yeah. when that's that's just not the case isn't it maybe the frequency is higher mm-hmm. Uh, the abuse is more intense, the violence more slowly and, well. and, you know, escalates and escalates and builds. But uh, for it to go away, uh, there will always be there will always be a, a correlation there, mm-hmm. a reason to bring it up, uh, a necessity to bring it up. And I, I don't think that COVID will um, will be the only reason we do. Hopefully yeah. any attention that it gets is good attention, yeah. whether it's, you know, it's but contextual or related down on, on making sure that it stays on the map. People do. And not just associated Definitely. with that. Definitely. Okay. I, um, I think that, that even the refugee community, on a, to... on a larger scale, mm-hmm. getting attention yeah. or getting the aid it needs, getting the, the information, the access, yes, the proper attention. <laughs> it's important because it's, it's funny how we place this population as a burden on the economy and as mm-hmm. our political climate, Absolutely. but never really address it or haven't maybe really addressed it so much on a health level, yeah. really. When have we talked about the health of refugees so much and so publicly? Mm-hmm. Not for a really long time, you know. Of course, there are major efforts being made by international organizations and grassroots organizations in the area of mm-hmm. their health and well-being. Mm-hmm. But when has it ever been such a big burden, you know? Yeah. Or, I mean, perceived burden on, yeah. on, on the community. And when has it been talked about so much? Not, not, not that I can remember. Yeah, know? in my experience, it was only talked about in very specific settings, uh, also within the health sector, when they were related to stuff like HIV or hepatitis C. Precisely, a threat um, to the external community, right? Which external, brings us back to the quote, first, unquote, first yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, I want to take the last couple of minutes to maybe discuss uh, things on a maybe more forward-looking note and so in your experience basically if you can just give us like three four main points on how could we have done things differently in other words what should have the state what should have what should 
have the state done mm-hmm. or partners done to ensure a more rights-based approach to public health in order to safeguard the rights of refugees indiscriminately? To a large extent, the government needs to um, tap into alternative and innovative means to mm-hmm. do this. It has to deliver protection for all factions of society because leaving any faction out will essentially tarnish any work they mm-hmm. do, right? So yeah. this needs to be comprehensive and holistic, whether it's citizens, migrant populations, refugees, healthcare workers on the ground, medical staff, volunteers. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs a different level of protection and mm-hmm. a different angle of approach. And if this is not uh, dictated in a comprehensive plan, then then one of them will cancel the other out. Mm-hmm. One of them will have a negative effect on the other. Um, stopping the spread is is one thing, but the the conflict presented in a in a refugee camp in a in a pandemic is intersectional. It is layered. Uh, governments have not, of course, in in crisis mode, reached the level of dealing with psychosocial support mm-hmm. with gender based violence, like we discussed. They have not even gotten that far mm-hmm. in their grasping of what's happening to them, and that's planning. the truth. Yeah. But at least on an immediate effective level, economic support and economic responses for refugees, if our wish is to, of course, place them in a situation where they can't leave, mm-hmm. we have to make this situation as agreeable and as, as quote unquote, you know, as uh, successful as possible, yeah, right? You want them to, at least. there has to be a standard there. You're asking people not to leave. You're asking yeah. people to quarantine. You're asking people to stay at home. You need to take this on a very contextual level. Already your citizens, quote unquote, that used to get paid by the hour, that used to work on shift, that had part-time positions, already these positions are obsolete. Mm -hmm. How are you expecting an entire refugee community to bear that responsibility? To bear that responsibility and adapt and then further exacerbate already existing major inequalities, you know? Exacerbate perception of people, exacerbate their economic standing, exacerbate any rights approach that we've approached them with uh, on the level of policy and implementation to begin with. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I think that there is there is a crisis and, and post hoc solutions are necessary, but I think we've reached a stage in our understanding that we need to start uh, developing something more sustainable. Mm-hmm. The way we act is just unsustainable at yeah. the moment. So, I mean, uh, we're still dealing with it. You know how we could have dealt with it. It's it's not in the past yet, unfortunately. So mm-hmm. I think uh, it's a definitely a day by day thing, but we're not making sustainable plans yeah. yet. And uh, I, agree. I definitely think that that's the direction that needs to be taken. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Any concluding reflections, comments, or thoughts? I'm I'm sorry that I, I'm talking about something so grim. No, I hope next I mean, time I'm on this board. This is the reality, that, you know, right? Yeah, it is the reality. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely like we have necessary. more positive topics to talk about. Not many, yeah. not many, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, so happy to be able to address this with you. Thank you yeah. for your time and, and for having me. And uh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Jasmine. Uh, Thank you all for tuning in to this uh, episode of Alternative Frequencies. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel to hear more about it. And have a good day.